So a man walks in for a job interview, and the interview ask, interviewer asks him, where do you sell, see yourself in five years? To which man, the man responds, I would say my biggest weakness is listening. Right? Listening isn't something, uh, isn't a skill all of us have. It, it's something we can all do, it's something we can all develop. Um, but more often than not, we're, we're predisposed to hear what we are expecting instead of what is said. And this is the moment where you artfully do not look at your significant other. Right? Listening is tricky. And we, we have this, this, uh, this passage in Luke 14 where Jesus is at the, the house of a Pharisee. And he's not at the house of just any Pharisee. This is one of the leaders. A ru- the, the text says he, a ruler, maybe even a prince, right? So he's not just some Pharisee. This is an important Pharisee, a well-to-do Pharisee, an educated, wealthy, powerful, influential person. And you get this impression that Jesus is at this dinner party filled with rich, powerful, connected individuals. Right? And I, I wonder, and I, probably some projection, but I wonder if Jesus felt out of place. You know, he was raised in the backwaters of Israel in Nazareth, where uh, it's a place where they, everywhere else in Israel, Israel made fun of it because they talked funny. Right? You know, they were often the brunt of the jokes. There's, a, there's even a point where, can, can the Nazarene be saying this when the people are talking about Jesus? Because they were shocked that someone with his accent could have wisdom. And I wonder if Jesus felt out of place in this, in, at this dinner party. We don't really know. But it's clear that even if he felt out of place, there's n- he didn't at all feel diminished while he was there. You know, he, he felt like he could speak out fairly confidently. And while he's in the presence at this well-to-do dinner party, Jesus shares two, I don't know how else to describe them, but savage parables in this context. And we find those in Luke 14. So Luke 14, we'll read the, the first one. The first one, we don't read it as much as a parable, even though it's included as one, because it's, it, it, it is. It's just not as complete of a story as we typical like. But Luke 14, starting at verse 7. So remember, Jesus is at this, this dinner party. When he noticed how the guests picked their places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This, this parable is quite pointed, right? It's an obvious critique of what was going on. 
He, Jesus noticed how the guests were picking their places, and Jesus offers a kind of a tidbit of wisdom. And it, you actually find this in, in Proverbs 25. There's a similar piece of advice. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not claim a place among his great men. It is far better for him to say to you, come up here, than it is for him to humiliate you before his nobles. Jesus offers a fairly straightforward instruction of humble behavior, right? And I say behavior because Jesus doesn't actually address our heart issue here, does he? He offers some pretty actionable behavior. And I think most of us probably have imagined ourselves at one point or another to be humble, haven't we? Sometimes it's the best we can do, right? And I think it would be amazing that if all of us could live in a place where our hearts were truly humble. But that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves and probably an impossible thing to ask. But one thing we can do is we can act. We can imagine ourselves as humble people. We can say to ourselves, I will take the lowest spot intentionally, even though in my heart of hearts I don't want to. Sometimes choosing to act humbly even though we don't know it in our hearts is a good first step. And it's a better option than behaving in ignorance and pride, right? I don't think Jesus would have us end this, this pretending at imagining ourselves as humble. I think he, would call, he calls for a change of our hearts. Just like in this, he's calling for a change of a system, right? Jesus is here and he says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus invites the people who would listen, the people at this dinner party, to imagine their web of relations to be woven in love instead of obligation. To be woven in humility instead of power dynamics. And it would be what Jesus goes on to describe as a web of relationships that would cross differences and cross boundaries, right? Jesus drives his point home because he continues in, in, verse, in verse 12. Then Jesus said to the host, and not, he turns to the host. This is the gull of Jesus in the moment, right? Turns to the host. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. It takes a bit of nerve to say that to a host at the dinner party you're at. You hope that you've already eaten, right? He doesn't offer advice. See, this, I think most of us would be like, to our disciples afterward, do you see how they did that? We should do it differently, right, at a later date. But Jesus says it right there. And he says it to them in full knowledge. He says it to this rich, well-connected religious leader. May I suggest that the next time you have a party, you do things completely differently than what you've done here? Instead of this lot of rich, connected people, you should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Because that's worthwhile. 
In Jesus' time, as it is so often the case today, we, we have attached moral significance to economic privilege. You know, it, it, there's a similar oppressive system then and now that looks down on people who live in poverty or who are dependent on public assistance as if they're immoral, lazy, or incompetent. But throughout the Gospel of Luke, those living in precarious economic situations, what are referred to in the first chapter of Luke as the lowly, are seen as cherished recipients of God's favor and love. Those whom society would diminish, Jesus would increase. As followers of Jesus, we are to live out this narrative. We are to, we are to love, we are, we're all people, we are to live out this narrative where all people are loved, valued, included, even our enemies, and even those who we detest, and especially those whom society diminishes and detests. The kingdom of God is not built on displays of wealth, privilege, or political influence, but on the love of our neighbors, on the love of those who we come into contact with. Returning to the text at verse 14, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. I struggle with this response from this man. I'm not, I, in reading it, it's just like, why is that even included? It's like it wasn't attached to anybody that we know. And to be, when you're reading about it, and I was, because I kind of got, fixated on it in the, in the study for this, it was like, why is that there? And most scholars are just skip over it. They're like, yeah, this dude said this, and we move on to what Jesus said. But there's a, a Catholic theologian named Robert Capon who is um, always funny, a uh, little bit irreverent, but beautiful teaching. And he calls this out as peer gush, what he calls it. This man has just been as mystified as everybody else in this moment by the idea of inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to dinner parties. But since Jesus ends his remarks with a reference to the resurrection, this guy latches on to that. He latches on to the first spiritual bust that kind of comes to mind. And he says, ah, oh, yes, I do like the idea of a resurrection, and won't that be glorious? Right? And just like the man who went for the interview and had struggle listening to the question, he heard what he expected to hear. He heard what he wanted. And instead of actually listening to what Jesus was saying, instead of thinking what a life of humble living, a life of love could look like, he says, yes, won't heaven be awesome? For everybody, of course, of course, of course. To quote Robert Capon again, he says, Jesus finds himself com confronted with a lazy mind. Jesus said nothing really about heaven or about the end. It was like a, an end note, but the hearer fastens to it. 
as if Jesus had talked of, as if he had talked of nothing else. Just after Jesus had flipped the whole world on its head, had said the way you do things, the way you function as society, do it differently. This man just responds, wouldn't it be great to be at the banquet of the kingdom of God? I think it was this type of the response that frustrated Jesus and why he struggled so much with the Pharisees. Not because he disagreed with them, but because he felt affinity with them. But then, just when things started to get interesting, they would miss the point. Not that we're much different. And so what does Jesus do in this moment? He does what he often does when things get, when people seem to miss it. He says, well, if we're going to miss it, let's go further down that road, and I'm going to tell you another parable. Right? I said it plain and simple, so let's say it cryptically so you can't miss it. Right? So Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I had just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is Jesus, cryptically, restating his earlier point, but he's also driving it a bit further. See, earlier in the evening when Jesus saw the guests jockeying for position, he appealed to them with reason, with wisdom even, and he said to them, like, here's just a piece of advice. At least act humbly. You know, if you act humbly, the, the party could go much better for you. It, you won't be humiliated. It could be, it could be a good experience. But Jesus goes further in this parable and he says the pursuit of anything to do with this, the pursuit of a sensible life, of something that makes sense of reason, you know, that actually is grounds for excuse from the party entirely. See, all the excuses given by the guests, they're reasonable. They're sensible, they're legitimate. You know, the first one, it's like, I just purchased a new field. I've got to go inspect it. If you had just bought a house or signed a lease on a new apartment, are you going to go to a party that day? Most of us would say no. I know there's the odd exception. You just keep that to yourself. Right? I'm going to try a new oxen. You know, if we get a new vehicle or we actually need to get a new vehicle. Right? Have you ever had that? It's just like your insurance company calls you. 
And they're just like, this is how much we're going to give you, and you have like two days to buy a vehicle? It's stressful, right? The third one just got married. I'll be on my honeymoon, essentially. That's legitimate. Don't come. We actually don't want you. Honeymooning couples make everybody uncomfortable, right? And in the Old Testament, in the Torah specifically, the laws are laid out, but there's also the exceptions to the laws, right? And in Deuteronomy specifically, there's a passage on the rules of going to war which echoes this parable. It's, it feels obvious that Jesus had it in mind. He said, that, the officers shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else may begin to live in it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else may enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else marry her. A field, a wedding, a set of oxen. They're legitimate excuses. And I think most of us, if we were hosting a party and we got these excuses, we wouldn't be overly miffed, right? We'd be like, ah, it's reasonable. It's legitimate. You know, even the Old, law Testament, the Old Testament law made room for exceptions, for understanding that sometimes we have other responsibilities. But the owner of the house in the parable becomes angry. Angry at these legitimate, reasonable, sensible excuses. And this anger, it becomes like this driving force of the parable. And I, th- I, I don't know about you, this can make me uncomfortable. I don't like, because in the parable, in my mind, ultimately the, the host is God. And I hope I am one of the invited guests. And so to put myself in that position, it can be difficult to think of myself as the object of God's anger. But if you're kind of in that headspace, parables aren't allegory. And Jesus isn't trying to emphasize God's anger at people. He's trying to drive his point home that the pursuit of a proper, respectable life is an illegitimate excuse of missing the banquet. Jesus is trying to, pers- to drive the point home that seeking life as the path to salvation is futile. This is so much for myself, I find myself in that place. I'm someone who I would want to try and make my life the best it possibly can while still trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to do everything I can to live and I forget the fact that Jesus is exceedingly clear that in order to live, we have to die. We forget that resurrection is only found after we die that love is only found after we humble ourselves. Jesus is here is raging against the living, raging against our refusal to die. And he's calling us out using fairly extreme language. He's calling us out of this normal life of comfort, of typical. 
He's calling us out of the habit of hosting a typical dinner party with friends, powerful connections and, and family. And he's saying, maybe you could live differently. Maybe you could throw a dinner party where you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame. Or in our context, we would probably talk about inviting the marginalized, the forgotten, or those who have been pushed away. In this parable, Jesus invites those that would listen to put to death our insistence that the world and our relationships be based on obligation and power, and invites us to be reborn into a new life of love and humility. I think this path is found in the, the act of dying to self, of sometimes pretending that we are the least powerful, influential people in the room and taking on that loneliness, sometimes pretending, even when our hearts aren't there, to be humble and in humility, loving others. This path is found in dying to self in humility, and in loving others. Any thoughts, questions, or pushback from anyone? If you're new to us, this is something we do here at Royal City. We, we give time for response. Just ask that if you have something, you know, just say it into the microphone. You were speaking of, of um, Jesus arguing that Seeking life is not an excuse for missing the banquet, and that reminds me quite profoundly of the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher writes at some length about the various lives one could live from self-indulgence to wealth to honor to toil, which nowadays we might call the grind, to even a life of wisdom, and he, he discounts them as not worth living, and the only life that the teacher believes is worth living is one that is postured in fear and obedience to God. And so um, I think that's a, a really cool sort of parallel between Christ and the wisdom of the Old Testament. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, so you were talking about the uh, taking a humble seat at the banquet, even if you don't feel it. So that's a little bit for me about uh, faking it till you make it. Um, and so I'm a little conflicted with that. It seems a bit ingenuine. So can you reflect a little more on that? Sure. I hate the idea of fake it till you make it. Um, and I grew up pastor's kid. We faked it with no intention of ever making it. It was just you had to fake it. That was, that's the way it was. Um, and that, often the church is, is done that. And I don't think this is about presenting... So the difference here is when we say fake it till we make it, we meant present a good front, that kind of thing. Behaving humbly, even when we don't feel it, is I think slightly different because you're not trying to present something. You're actually, and if you're, if you're pretending to be humble so other people will notice you, that's not pretending to be humble. Do you know what I mean? So it feels like there's overlap, but I think they're polar opposites, where this isn't about presenting a good front, it's actually just the opposite. Um, 
There's also, this is a fun thing, so neuroscience, this is a little fun world, but behavior versus action. So we're conditioned in our, in our Western way of thinking that we think it and then we do it. Um, and it's actually, they're not finding that. So sometimes the way we behave influences our thinking. And so as they do more studies, so as we pretend to be humble, we actually become more humble. I know for myself, as I pretend to be humble, um, even in, our, in our, our work here, if I'm pretending to be humble while serving meals, I am learning humility. It's the only way to really learn humility is to try it. So um, if you're being dishonest with yourself, so I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting someone who introduced themselves in their introduction, said, I am one of the most humble people you will ever meet. Um, and they said it totally straight-faced, right? And it was, right? It's <laughs> like, did they really just say that out loud? Um, and they obviously haven't met me. I'm way more humble than they are. Um, but it's just th this idea of actually acting it out. So sometimes we, we think that we have to get everything in our head and our heart right before we start to follow Jesus. Jesus calls us down this road of humility and love. You will not feel humble and loving, but we act humble and loving and we're honest with ourselves and even those around us. And I think that would be the difference. So there's still honesty. Piggybacking on that, I think it's almost like as you become obedient, the desire to be obedient grows. Um, it's not always natural, and, and there's that relating to science idea of it takes 30 days to form a habit. So I think God sometimes creates discomfort in some areas to mold us more into his image. At this party where Jesus is, you have a group of people who have been living and practicing living a certain way for a long time, right? And it's become approved and accepted and somehow trying to break through years of thinking that way and thinking that it's okay. Must, it is extremely difficult. And on a party level, I don't know, I'm sure other people have experienced this, but you're going to have a little gathering. Maybe you want 10, 12 people. And you're kind of going, yeah, we'd like to invite so-and-so, but gosh, they don't get along with so-and-so, with and, -so, and um, it's just it's going to be a disaster. And if, you know, we, uh, yeah, I guess we're afraid to let go at times and... and uh, because we have brains and we think about things and how to do them. But I think the, the beauty of the message is that Jesus is challenging us to start thinking differently. And um, for me, the faking it until you make it, at the end, you're still just a fake. So that was the, uh, the, that part of it. But anyway, so we go. Thanks, Mark. Awesome. I'll just close this in prayer and then we can go. Lord God, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather. Thank you for the scripture and that the, the authors and the writers were able to catch uh, these moments for us to help us understand how best to follow you. 
pray that you would give us strength to act humbly even when we don't feel it in our hearts, to love even when we don't feel it in our hearts. And we trust that as we do this, our hearts will begin to change and become more like you, more like yours. Thanks for the invitation. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in the peace and grace of our Lord Jesus.